Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Northeast Iowa, and I am thrilled to welcome my friend and guest, Matthew Ewing, who is the Vice President for Advancement at Boise State University. Welcome. Thank you, Brent. Uh, I got to tell you, I've listened to your podcast, and uh, with with our long-term relationship, I've been looking forward to this discussion for a while. Well, you're in the hot seat now, so no listening today. Uh, no, this is going to be fun. And as I was just sharing with you, and as I've said before, uh, even for folks who I would consider friends, who I really do know well, like you, uh, we often cover ground in this podcast environment that we just don't get to in more of a you know, business uh, relationship, if you will. And so one of my favorite things to learn about has been your own path to higher education, because oftentimes it is something on that journey that uh, first sparks your passion for higher education, for the impact, and then that ultimately uh, can lead to successful careers like yours in the philanthropy sector. And so I want to go back in time to let's call it junior year of high school, Matthew Ewing. Who was that guy? What was he into? Where was he? And what led you to Indiana University? Huh. Junior year of high school. So uh, that that's in Tell City, Indiana, Brent. Uh, I'd be shocked if most of your listeners... When we go, when we all visit Tell City, <laughs> what are the top two things we need to do? Oh, well, you can get out on the Ohio River. It's in the beautiful southern Indiana, uh, about midway between Evansville and, and Louisville, Kentucky. So right on the southern Indiana border, the Perry County, where Tell City is, is predominantly Hoosier National Forest. So it's one of the, uh, it's a beautiful part of the country, a beautiful part of Indiana. It was a beautiful community to grow up in. Uh, my my mother was the mayor as I was growing up, which brings it, uh, you know, in a small town, every, all eyes are, are on you. So I was taught from a, an early age uh, how, to, how to behave in a small town as well. Uh, but I was, you know, like a lot of, uh, of my counterparts and, and kids I grew up in, I was, I was into sports. I played three sports in, in high school, um, also in, into the academics. And you mentioned Indiana University, uh, really didn't uh, apply or think about going anywhere else. Uh, I had an older sister who was a, a sophomore, well, when I was junior year, she would have been a junior then in, uh, at Indiana University. And so followed my sister to, to IU, we're a, a diehard Hoosier family. And uh, was was pleased that we were able to spend one year together. Then when I when I went to college, I love it. So with mom as the mayor, what are like the top I don't know top memory that stands out uh, in that capacity? Oh uh, well, it's you know I, I think the top memory is I'll go back to just that that community and because it's shaped so much of who I am today. And being in a small community and a close knit community. I look back on the the circle of friends that that my parents had, and the the times as a kid where you know we'd get together for cookouts. Uh, my mom was in a card club. It's all this the same twenty families that I was just back there about a month ago. Uh, saw our family for the first time in eighteen months due to uh, the the pandemic and our movement, and and reconnected with a number of those family as well, and. So it's it's not only my my parents who shaped me, but like a, a lot of people, it's 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 the community you grow up in, and I owe a lot to to Tell City, Indiana, and all of those those families. I love it. Well, I doubt Tell City gets talked about enough on podcasts, so I'm glad we could cover that ground. And I do want to just dive into your experience at Indiana. I know it's uh, it was formative for you, and you're incredibly passionate to this day. Um, you've had personal and professional experiences there, but um, when was it that you started to get exposure to um, philanthropy? Because I know you were involved with the Student Foundation, which it seems like is a terrific gateway for folks to um, build careers. And I know Indiana has an amazing um, just reputation as being a source of talent for, for this sector. Yeah, I would say, Brent, uh, you know, I got involved with the Student Foundation my freshman year, uh, but that was really through my fraternity. And so the Indiana University Student Foundation uh, was started in 1951 by the president of the IU Foundation. And its primary objective was he recognized that, and, and look, we deal with these challenges, I think, even today, most institutions of 
that the student body didn't really understand what the role of the foundation was or the role that philanthropy played on a campus. And so they, they started the student foundation with that primary mission. As, as a result of that, they, they needed a big splash and event to be able to, to build off of. And so they started the Little 500 Bike Race, which uh, your community may be, be familiar with if they've seen the movie Breaking Away. Uh, it's, it's coined as the world's greatest college weekend. Uh, there's pros and, and cons to, to that line and, and what that brings to a, a campus community. But I got involved through my fraternity as a participant in that event. And so uh, tell me more about the event. And I also want to know, do they have RV parking? Just asking for a friend. They, they do, Brent. And I still go back every year to officiate the race. And so we got to get you to come experience that. Uh, it's televised nationally every year. I think this year was the 70th running of that event. Uh, it was a little obviously different this year. We, we ran the event with no fans in there, but I was pleased that the universities figured out a way to run it. But typically you'll have, you know, 20, 30,000 uh, people that either attend or roll into that community around that event. And it's, it's, you know, from day one, though, it was focused on students helping students. And so, and, and I'll get to my first role kind of post-graduation uh, a little later, but it's designed that students are leading it. It's meant and designed to raise money for working student scholarships and really broaden that exposure. And we just happened to have a bike race that has turned into a, you know, a nationally or world-renowned event to be able to do that. When I, when I worked there, uh, then Senator Obama visited while he was on the campaign trail. Uh, Lance Armstrong. Uh, so is this basically like NASCAR meets bike racing meets fundraising? I mean, is that what we're talking about? That's what we're talking about. And, it, you know, the, the uniqueness of it is, is unparalleled. And I mean, it's, it's ran on a cinder track, Brent. I bet a lot of, of the listeners uh, have never even seen a cinder track uh, in, in this day and age. So um, it's just a fantastic event and was both formative and transformative in, in my life, uh, not to mention what then transpired into a career. Well, favorite memory of the, uh, the little 500, if you had to pick one. Uh, probably in, in 2001, when, when our fraternity won, won the race and, you know, the, the friends that, you know, the bike team is almost a fraternity within a fraternity. Um, I, I was not on that winning team. I was a part of the team, but, you know, all 12 riders and the probably 30, 40 alumni that are still committed and a part of that, uh, winning it was, was a vehicle for that excitement. But the friendships and the really lifelong friendships that are spawned out of that event um, is just amazing. So it, it it's this beautiful uh, bike race that accomplishes so much in terms of its impact, not only on the university, but, but those alumni. Well, I think it's an amazing example, especially after the last year, when we think about you know, what are the experiences that maybe we can scale more effectively digitally? Or, you know, when does it make sense to go back and do that event in person? I'm obviously a champion for trying to scale digital experiences as much as possible. But I think what you just described at the Little 500 is reflective 100% of the kind of experience that we absolutely should continue to lean into, where you have the intersection of one amazing relationship building genuine fun and good times and great vibes while also being able to work in strong impact in the short term that I know generates revenue for a great cause, but I'm sure it also builds lifelong connections that can support major gift or planned giving outcomes years and years after the participants got exposure to the little 500. Yeah. And I'll, I'll draft off that, that last comment, Brent, uh, towards the tail end of my, my tenure at Indiana University, as we were looking at our next campaign, as, as we brought in a team to assess the organization and prepare for that, um, we were looking at alumni participation. And I, don't, I, I won't quote Indiana's alumni participation rate right now. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, but like a lot of large publics, was, was not a shining 
piece of, of, of a, a statistic you would like to show. But when you compared that to the alumni participation of those that went through the student foundation, it pushed upwards to 80 and 90%. And so it speaks to the role that things like that and the, the complete ecosystem of a university, depending on where that student connects into, and the role it plays not just in the immediate return on that investment, but the long-term investment return on that investment for an institution. I love it. Well, here's to a uh, 100% full capacity, little 500 in 2022. There you go. And, and you'll be there. I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold the, uh, well, we're trying to figure automobile out where to stop. There's <laughs> my colleague, Mark Nagel, who is, who is, uh, you know, a terrific marketing uh, uh, team member at Evertrue also apparently has a buddy from high school who wraps vehicles. And so there's a lot of chatter right now about wrapping the Grinnebago into some sort of campaign. Uh, and uh, that might be my ticket to some sort of bona fide college tour. Uh, we'll, we'll see if that, I don't know, I think I might have to bring the family with me if that were the case. But anyhow, uh, more to come on that front. Out of college, uh, now it's sort of making a little bit se uh, more sense. I want to know about your time working for the governor or, or whether that was right out of college or in college um, and maybe uh, harkens back to mom, the mayor. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up again, I think all that connects back to my community. And um, when I, when I went to Indiana university, so my, my dad was in finance and banking and, and my mom was an elected official for as long as I can remember. So I, I naturally get to Indiana and I study both economics and political science. Yeah, so I, I, I split it down the middle on, on that and then got a wonderful opportunity. So our, our governor, and I think this program still runs to, to this day, uh, out of the governor's office, they ran a fellowship program where they identified, uh, I think our class was five. It was typically in the four to six range, uh, graduates from around the state of Indiana, uh, from all institutions. And you got the opportunity to come into the governor's office, work directly for and with the governor uh, for a year. And I, I was assigned to various different uh, pieces of the administration uh, on behalf of, of the governor's office. And it was just this remarkable, fantastic, transformative experience. Um, unfortunately, I, and, and Governor Frank O'Bannon was, was who I went to work for. And uh, Governor O'Bannon passed away while in office, uh, which was, was heartbreaking. Um, when I look at a, a positive side of that in terms of an experience for growth, I, I got to experience a, a transition of an administration. And so the late Joe, uh, Governor Joe Kernan, as Lieutenant Governor took over. Uh, I don't know that Governor Kernan really wanted to be governor. Uh, from South Bend, he was a big baseball fan, huge in, in that community, Notre Dame guy. And uh, that was when, uh, which will be a familiar name for you, uh, now president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels, uh, ran against Governor Kernan and won that election. So I was then kind of in a, in a you know, flexion point of, okay, if I'm gonna stay in politics, probably got a couple years before I find that, that next thing. And, and back to the little 500, uh, I had an opportunity to meet a gentleman named Kurt Simic uh, when I was a, a student and particularly in my senior year, when I really, I think, started to recognize the role that the Student Foundation was playing. And it wasn't just about my bike team and, and the race I was preparing for, but the larger event as a whole. And so I, I reached out to Kurt, you know, as a mentor and just to bounce some ideas off. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come raise money for Indiana? And I, I said, well, Kurt, I don't even you know, really know what that means. Um, and there just happened to be an opportunity for me to plug in with the student foundation. And so my, my first job in, in higher ed fundraising was less as a direct fundraiser, uh, but they hired me to, to be race director for the Little 500. And which to this day, Brent, and, and I love my job today. I've, I've loved every job I've held uh, in, in our advancement world. I would go back and be race director forever. It is It, it was to this day my my uh, most memorable and enjoyable uh, job. So I, I did that for two years and had a, an amazing experience. And then the, the 
IU Foundation was looking to really ramp up their, which at the time was called their Leadership Annual Giving Program. So uh, it's the same conversations you and I have had. It's the same conversations a lot of shops are having of, okay, we, we do a reasonably good job, if not a great job, at the very top. And those, the, the top of the pyramid, those folks that are, are making transformational gifts and building those relationships. But Indiana with 600,000 living alumni, we, we weren't really penetrating the rest of the pyramid. And so I was hired to start our leadership annual giving program. Uh, that started with myself and two other individuals. And then over a period of probably five to seven years, we, we grew that up to, I think at the time, around somewhere between 15 and 18, uh, what became the regional development program. Um, that is the same model, and we'll, we'll probably get into this later because it, it actually, as, as our conversations developed, as my thinking change has what led into our, what, our partnership around the donor experience officer. And you know, we were very effective, I think, at, at Indiana University, and they still are today with that model of the regional teams. Uh, but for us and at Boise State, what we've launched in partnership with you around the DXOs, but that's how I got my start. And, you know, I, as I've said to you, I think a number of times and a number of, of individuals throughout my career, um, I think you start to get a sense of, of, of why Indiana University was so transformative for me not only as a student, uh, but also it, it set me on a career path. And, you know, Brent, I was given jobs that I had probably no business at doing, but being in an environment where um, you can fail, but you can move forward and innovate, you can grow. And, and Indiana University is a, a very mature operation. And it was one of the best places that, that I refer to as grow up in this industry yeah. and to really learn. Well, and I, I definitely want to touch on uh, in a bit the fact that you are one of the younger advancement leaders. I'm not going to share your age, but you are on the younger side and you have had the opportunity throughout your career to assume a lot of responsibility, which you haven't shied away from earlier than most. And I definitely want to better understand that. But before we dive in, just thinking about the scale at Indiana University, 600,000 alumni. Let's say, for example, that we wanted to cover 2% of the giving pyramid of that population, excluding parents, friends, just the alumni base. That's 12,000 people. <laughs> and let's then say that we wanted to have portfolios of roughly 125 each, 125 prospects. That's 96 fundraisers required to cover 2% of the giving pyramid. Let's call it roughly 100. And to then think, well, what if we wanted to cover 4%? Well, now we need 200 fundraisers. And then even if you doubled that and we had 400 fundraisers, we're still only scratching the surface of actual relationship building. And so I think no matter what community it is, you can sort of apply the same metrics, but it is, um, it's just remarkable how much untapped potential there is when you think about it that way. Because for most, and I'm sure Indiana does have 100 or 200 fundraisers, but um, even if you wanted to cover the top 10%, well, that would be 60,000 human beings. And, uh, and, and I doubt that that was, was at all uh, even aspirational when, when you were there. But I suspect that trying to build out the Leadership Annual Giving Program was designed to go deeper into the giving pyramid. And I'm curious when you think about wins or challenges early in your career, you spent eight years at Indiana directly, not to mention your student, um, you know, your student work, but what were some of the highlights or maybe formative early experiences in direct fundraising where you started to really uh, feel like things were clicking? Yeah, I think, I think back to, and I, uh, we got a new president during my time at the foundation, uh, Dan Smith, who, who recently retired. And as a part of that, I, I, I think back to, we, we had a budget process. And again, I was fairly early in my career, but I had to go present to our, our new president, Dan Smith, and the rest of the executive leadership. I will ask, how old were you then, roughly? Uh, roughly, probably 31. 
maybe, well, yeah, probably around 31. And, you know, so I, I go in and uh, I'm presenting my budget for the year. And, level, and was, of, level of nerves going into this? Uh, like, off the or you're cool, calm, collected. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I like to think my presentation was cool, calm and collected because I'll, I'll give you the, the punchline at the end. But internally, you know, I probably fretted for days making sure I had all my ducks in a row and and well prepared to go do that with with a new leader, um, but also the arrest of the executive team there. And we were asked to envision, OK, if we were going to increase our budget by 10 percent, where would we invest that and what were what was the ROI that we were expecting to have? And so I, I laid out some of the early successes of our leadership annual giving program and said, if, if we're going to increase by 10%, if you can give me one or two more of these, this is what I think we can show and, and show that future. And I'll never forget this. this. is one of those moments in your career you really forget. And Dan Smith looked at me and he said, two, you need 10 more of these. And so I walked out of that, that meeting with the charge then to go hire immediately 10 more leadership annual giving officers. And, and I bring that up because it, it, we did have a tremendous success, amount of success. And I, I think back to some of the, not only the gifts that were closed, um, but probably more importantly, where I think that impact had, and I, I stay in touch with a number of these individuals, was the talent development that, that that program, the impact that had on talent development. And where now those people that I've who hired, they? like who were those 10 folks you hired or members of your team and where are they now in the Indiana family tree of philanthropy? Yeah. So um, Rebecca Mormon, who, who I hired at the time uh, now is, is, is married. She's running the women's philanthropy program at Indiana university. Uh, Molly Giles is a, is a lead fundraiser for uh, the, the museum in, in Indianapolis uh, Caitlin Callahan, who was one of my first hires, uh, then went on to get her MBA at, at Georgetown and is now serving as chief of staff of a huge, ho huge hotel chain, um, not to mention a number of other individuals through, uh, throughout the years. Uh, it, it's just a, a fantastic, and that's, that's always been my view of, and it's the same thing with our DXO program, I, I put equal weight on talent development and pipeline development. And so when we look to hire people, and I took this philosophy at Indiana, I'm not looking to hire seasoned fundraisers into that role. I'm looking for the intangibles and the culture fit and the people. We can teach them how to be fundraisers. And my hope then is that we're, we're, we're passing on whether they choose to stay at, at, any, at Boise State or in any organization, uh, they're viewing Boise State, the program we're building here as a great place to be from. And so you started at Indiana University, which is a real uh, source of talent for the sector, mm -hmm. but it also, you know, it's common that we hear leaders lament talent issues, or it's hard to find a great talent pipeline, or we're struggling with major gift offers, whatever it may be. But at the same time, you're sitting on college campuses that could, that are the source of talent for all of the leading companies in the region whether you're in Boise, whether you're uh, in, in, uh, in Indiana. And so it does seem like better than most, Indiana has created that student to young fundraising professional talent pipeline. Maybe that was partly related to your work. Maybe it's because of the student foundation. But is it fair in, in saying that Indiana has done that better than most? And what is holding back other institutions that you either worked at directly or have exposure to from doing the same thing? You know, I don't know that I can say Indiana University has done it better than most. I just don't have the exposure into to other universities, um, but they do it very well. And look, I played a small part in that. I mean, that if I look back, you know, we I'm a sports guy. I love love sports and you know, you look at whether it's Nick Saban's coaching tree or um, Coach Peterson from, from Boise State and the coaching tree there. Indiana University's got a big coaching tree. And, you know, Kurt Simic is, is at the core of a lot of that. I mean, you look around the country at the leaders in higher education advancement, uh, Kurt Simic is not too many degrees separation from those. All right. Whether it's ESPN or you name it, 
a lot of those coaching tree visualizations are out there. This might be a job for the Evertrue marketing team. So we may need to work on the Kurt Simic advancement tree or fundraising tree. We will be following up with you on that. I, I would love to see it. And, and I, I, I know Kurt uh, would would be honored, uh, but he could also just name it. I mean, that's that's the beauty of a guy like Kurt Simic and why he's so good at his at his work and, and profession, which he continues today. Uh, I've never seen someone so energized on that. But but I, back to your question, too, about the pipeline. I mean, we you're right. And that's why we're being so intentional about it, about it here. I mean, we're we're interviewing for a couple uh, DXO positions right right now. And part of the lens at which we look through is, you know, what talent do we have right here that, again, they may not be a seasoned professional. And I'm okay with that. Right. We can teach them the process and the model. They need to buy into our culture. We want them bought into seeing this as a profession. We're going to invest in them. All we ask is that they invest back in the profession and we'll show them a pathway to a successful career. I just wrapped, uh, I was sharing with you, I had the opportunity to speak with the Oregon State University Foundation Board of Trustees um, earlier today via Zoom. And we were talking about the same issue. And a question that I asked, um, we don't really like to talk about, we talk about money all the time in this sector, but we don't necessarily like to talk about how much money we make as fundraising professionals. And I think that um, most students who are seniors at Boise State or Oregon State or any institution out there would be surprised to learn that you can do well and do good at the same time. Mm-hmm. They'd be surprised to know what senior leaders in fundraising roles can earn. And I wonder sometimes if we just aren't transparent enough about that because we don't want to talk about money. Uh, whereas obviously other sectors are, um, you know, trying to recruit people who are skilled and interested in the work, but also can do well financially. And so I'm just curious, like, even as you think about your early journey, like when did you realize what the leadership team at the Indiana University Foundation could earn and that it wasn't mutually exclusive to work in a mission-driven context that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, sacrifice, you know, quality of life and, and earnings potential? Yeah, I don't think I, you know, probably, you know, recognized or I, I wouldn't, I don't think I had established at the time more of the mindset I have today which is um, back to, and you said it, you know, you said it perfectly and you you can do well and do good at the same time. And, you know, Brent, it's, I'm I'm reminded here, I was, when I was at Cal Poly, uh, we, our college of business there gave a young alumnus award. Fantastic student, like, and going to go on to do two big things, who was also philanthropically minded. And she made the comment in her, her speech that she was going into the for-profit world because that's where she can make the most money to make the difference in the nonprofit world. And that may be true, but I did take pause in someone as talented as her making that decision because of the financial gain she would make versus if we had her in the nonprofit world to innovate and move us forward as a profession. That is so well said. John Morris from Auburn University, previously at Kansas State, gave a session at our RAISE conference this year. And his really insightful uh, punchline was, we have an opportunity in this sector to corner the market on purpose, to find those students like that student you just described who are philanthropically oriented, but also ambitious and want to do well and have personal financial goals and not let those individuals just opt out of this space. And I think some of that is a marketing problem. And maybe maybe because we're so mission oriented, we over-rotate on that side and it gives impressions to that student that there might not be an opportunity to do as well as one can. Exactly. And look, you know, I, I don't, I'm hesitant to go down this rabbit hole, uh, 
But it's something we're, we're looking at here at Boise State is I think about being able to recruit and, and retain top talent. You know, we are, Boise is, you know, it's opened up to the, to the world and the country now. Uh, you know, what you used to growing community oh, in the country, right? In the country. Yeah. You know, they, they used to get us, it was either, you know, they didn't know if it was I, Iowa or Idaho. And, and now Boise's on the map, which is great because it, it certainly gives us the ability to, to recruit. Um, but the cost of living is increasing. And we also have to think about the ability to retain talent. So that does bring us to, you know, compensation of our, of all of our team, not just frontline fundraisers. And it also, at least for me, and this is something we're exploring, this is the rabbit hole I was hesitant to go down because I, I know it is not common in our, in our profession, but how do the concepts like performance incentive programs play a role? How can we do that without losing our mission and the purpose, but also balancing that with the recognition of we're trying to recruit and retain really talented people that have a lot of options to go do other things. Look, I get it. And it is a little bit of a rabbit hole and it can be uncomfortable, but at the same time, Matthew, you know it well, we do it for college presidents. We do it for head coaches. We do it for assistant coaches. We do it for strength coaches. We can do it for a lot of other revenue generating roles in higher education without thinking twice because it's come it's just become a standard the mm-hmm. market has demanded that standard um, and i think we are overdue in fundraising being just as aggressive and not feeling guilty about paying people really well who can deliver on the philanthropic mission in a manner that can actually maybe have an even more direct impact on outcomes than that student at Cal Poly who thought she had to go work in the for-profit sector to make money there to then donate back. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think we need to keep pushing that. And obviously um, we have to be judicious with the the funds and we have to right. you know, make sure that these are um, things that we can test and then scale, but there is great precedent around campus for incentive achievement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you did uh, make the move from Indiana to Boise uh, and uh, having had Iowa mistaken for Idaho throughout my entire life, less so recently, that's, that's a good point. Um, that's a big change. It's a new community to go from how ingrained you were from Tell City and Hoosier National Forest and the Little 500 and your fraternity and your friends. What was it like to sort of start in a totally new environment and sell somebody else's mission that you hadn't lived yourself? Yes, it's a great question, Brent. And I I remember early in my career thinking, I'll never be able to do this anywhere else. You know, and, and your listeners and you've heard my connections there, I'll never be able to do it anywhere else. Um, and that changed. You know, I was was fortunate to work at Indiana and grow up through there. And, and, and what I also appreciated about the people that I worked for at Indiana in nurturing that growth for me, um, you know, I, I reached a point where I knew I was either going to be a lifer there and those more aspirations that I had, both in terms of uh, experience and challenges for me personally, um, probably could have happened there. But I, I, I was ready for that next step, or at least felt like I was at the time, and, and had gracious leaders and mentors there that, that actually helped connect me to Boise State. And the, the biggest sell initially was probably to my wife, Vanessa, when she said, wait, Idaho, where, where are we going? Uh, but I'll tell you, our first trip out here, and it's, it's no surprise that it's become one of the fastest growing cities in the country, uh, we fell in love with it immediately. And, and the, not just the, 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 the topography and geography that fit with our, our personal lifestyle, you know, which again, I'll use as a little bit of chamber of commerce selling here to, to folks that are listening and that, that may wanna look at Boise State. You know, how many places can you ski and play golf in the same day and, and not drive 30 minutes to do it? Isn't you there know? a name for that? What do we call that? I, I thought Gordon had a name for it. Um, but yes, I was going to ask you about skiing and golfing in the same day with 30 minutes because I'm so indoctrinated now. I'm a believer. 
But yeah. those of you who haven't experienced Boise, it really is an amazing, amazing little town. And I do love Des Moines, uh, but it just doesn't have much uh, on yeah. Boise as it relates to the, nat the natural resources. So, so we fell in love with with it immediately, and and I say we. My wife is is very much a partner in our work. I I joke if she didn't have her own career, I'd hire her to be a fundraiser somewhere because she's she's fantastic at it and a great partner. So, but what I'll say about about Idaho and particularly uh, the the constituents base that I work with, and and our alumni and and supporters and friends of of Boise State, uh, is it reminds me a lot of the Midwest. Um, hardworking people, practical people. Um, they, they open their doors. And Brent, from day one, when we moved here, those doors were open. And we were welcomed in this community and, and really established and built um, not only fantastic professional relationships, but very deep, strong personal relationships as well. And so spent five amazing years here on, on, on my first time at Boise State. Uh, and a part of that then professionally was when I, when I talk about aspiration, it was more of I was ready for a challenge. And Indiana, again, being a very mature operation, I felt like I, I needed a challenge to go to a little less mature operation, see what pieces of that playbook worked, but also open and expand my horizons and, and opportunities to look and say, how can we do things a little bit different at the same time? And the where, where Boise State was in its maturity and growth, it was the perfect place to come do that. At the same time, uh, you had an opportunity to then, uh, when you were at Boise State serving in sort of the AVP for development role, mm -hmm. the opportunity arose to lead an organization for the first time as both vice president for development and CEO of the Cal Poly Foundation. Uh, in San Luis uh, Obispo in California. And uh, I will say many of our listeners know that my family and I spent 10 months and we did 12,000 miles in 33 states in our RV during the pandemic. And when people often ask, what were some of your favorite places? We had an unbelievable time at Pismo Beach, <clears throat> which is really close to Cal Poly. You went there and you left. Not an easy place to leave. Tell mm -hmm. me more about it. Yeah, you know, Brent, I'll, I'll say I'm, you know, and I think of myself as, you know, the, the luckiest guy alive, really. I mean, and I say that having had the opportunity to work now for three remarkable institutions that just happen to be in also some of the most beautiful parts of the country, um, but also the opportunity to work with three remarkable leaders at each of those, really four under two presidents at, at Boise State. And so, you know, it's a small advancement world, you know, this, this Brent. Uh, so I, one of my, my mentors, Marty Heil, who is, is at Michigan State right now, I uh, worked for her at Indiana University. Uh, she was, uh, while she was at Michigan State the first time, our president at Cal Poly, uh, Dr. Jeff Armstrong, was a dean at Michigan State. And so they got to know each other through the fundraising uh, efforts in the College of, of uh, I believe, Animal Science and Agriculture. I may be getting that, that wrong at Michigan State. But then Jeff went on to be president of Cal Poly. And they Jeff had made some changes with their vice president for advancement and had decided, interestingly, to not fill the position for a number of years. Uh, they And I think it was the right decision at the time. They Jeff is a remarkable fundraiser. Uh, it's, a, it's a high priority for him. And they also had strong leadership at their foundation board level. Uh, but they reached a point where they were looking to launch the public phase of their campaign. And Marty reached out to me to see if I'd have a, a conversation with Jeff about that opportunity. And so much of what, you know, I, again, I was in that AVP role here. I'd spent five years. I felt like I'd kind of built that to where where I could in that role, and this opportunity presented itself to go actually orchestrate and, and lead the public phase of, of a campaign for Cal Poly. So I would say the combination of initially what, what really drove our decision down to move down there was the strong leadership that I saw in, in President Armstrong and, and Bill Swanson, who chairs their foundation board. And then also that, per, again, that, that personal challenge to say, okay, this is an opportunity for me to go lead a campaign 
and, and help orchestrate a team to accomplish that. And they closed that campaign last year. It was the largest and most successful fundraising campaign in the California State University system. And so that team, the president, all throughout the organization uh, did a remarkable job in that fundraising effort. Matthew, can I just ask you, let's talk about Marty Heil for, an uh, for a minute, because I think it's reflective of, you know, it's one thing to work with someone. It it's another thing to work with someone and have strong mutual respect. And it's yet another thing to do that and maintain that relationship. And so I'm curious, as you've already referenced the coaching tree or the fundraising tree, now you're talking about, you know, what if Marty Heil hadn't thought of you when talking to Jeff, you were clearly on the short list of potential referrals, um, which ultimately in such a tight knit sector, your reputation is sort of the only thing that matters because everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. How intentional are you when you think about your own fundraising tree, folks you've worked with and referenced on this call, folks like Marty Heil, it's almost like your own portfolio in a certain regard. And when you think about maintaining those professional relationships, um, some of it maybe just happens ad hoc or you see somebody at a conference, um, but maybe especially over the last year, have you, do you have a philosophy on that or how intentional are you about maintaining those relationships? You know, probably not as intentional as I, I should be. Um, I think a lot of it is is the kind of the point in my career right now. As you mentioned at the beginning, I'm I'm, I'm still fa fairly young in in my career, and particularly to now have served in, in this vice president role at, at two universities. That um, you know the the coaching tree up that that I was a part of um, was was those connections and, and and I mean the mentorships, the conversations there. Uh, I'm sitting here reminded of myself. I, I probably need to check in on Marty and haven't given her a call in a while. So, uh, we're, Marty, we're doing good work here. Her, we're doing yeah, good work. I Let me know how it goes. Yeah. Um, but, but I'll answer that maybe a little different way. And, and I, I mentioned some of those folks that that came out of our regional advancement program. Uh, Casey Deals, another one at the 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 IU Foundation. And I'll answer it maybe a little bit more in my philosophy about you know my thinking about building our leaders here at Boise State. And I've, I've been fortunate in, in some of the reshaping we've done this year to hire two just remarkable AVPs. And I have no desire to leave Boise State University. But I think it's my duty to be thinking about how I'm grooming leaders and positioning this organization that if I won't say I walk out tomorrow. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, this organization is able to continue on and almost continue to strengthen itself. And so when I think about building our teams, our Gia Beristein and Joseph Boki, who uh, will start with us next week, that's the lens that through I think I think of it. And so it's I would say it's an intentional way, but it's I hadn't thought about it in terms of the the coaching tree. But it's starting to build that that tree, and you know I can go through the same thing at, at Cal Poly. Stacy Cannon, who runs their principal gift program there, one of the best fundraisers I've I've ever worked with. Uh, I'd do anything to to pull a piece of that coaching tree. Well, I can't even say she's a part of my coaching tree. She was there and established when I got there. Um, but it's you know those sort of relationships that I also look to as mentors and. You know, whether that's my team now that I, I really rely on to, to bounce ideas off of, or that's those individuals that I've worked with in the past that haven't been my leaders, um, that I really look to for ideas too. And um, they've played a critical part of shaping, I think, who I am, not only as a person, but as, as a leader. And, and I know I've probably made a tons of leadership mistakes over the years, uh, but, I, but I hope I've played a role in helping them grow and position themselves. Really well said. And um, I want to, as we start to conclude here, make sure we get to spend some time um, on your rejoining uh, Boise State in the leadership role at an absolutely fascinating time mm -hmm. and a challenging time. 
And earlier in the session, I was going to ask if you, you hinted at wanting to uh, potentially consider a career in politics. And I would say in a certain regard, when you work in public higher education, you have a career in politics. And so to the extent you're comfortable sharing just your perspective on that intersection in a community where Boise State University is a real source of innovation and employment, um, but there is a political backdrop and negotiation that constantly uh, has to happen. And it plays out in the news and in the newspaper. And, uh, you know, so I assume um, it's, it's, um, it just sort of comes with the territory, but I am curious uh, to just get your perspective, especially in light of the last year and a half. Yeah, I'll start with Brent, just, just quickly my return. And, you know, we were, we were happy at Cal Poly and, and doing amazing things with an amazing team at an amazing university. Um, and then we got a new president at Boise State. And, you know, I, I mentioned this community and I mentioned not only the professional aspect of those relationships and partnerships that I was able to build with Boise State, uh, but the, the deep personal connections and friendships that we developed here. Again, I say we with, with Vanessa. And so when Dr. Trump got here, uh, I believe in 20, 2018, she had, was looking to, to explore some changes and bringing in her philosophy in terms of where she saw our advancement operation moving. And she reached out and, and explored my, my interest in returning and, and it just was not the right time. But uh, like, like any good person often might do, uh, I left the door open a little bit and I said, uh, I said, look, you, you go through your search and if, if you're not happy with what you get, you know where I am. And probably six, eight months later, that came in. And I think my wife, who uh, also deeply loved our friendships at, at Cal Poly and in San Luis Obispo, uh, was, was eager to return to Boise State. And I would say that we were eager to return here. Uh, I then started in January of 19. And that was an interesting time as we then fast forward uh, end of January, about six weeks later, when- January 20, January I'm 20. sorry, sorry, yeah. my apologies. Yeah. Yeah, correction. January. Sure, so we've all wiped the last year out of our minds. It, so I get it. It, yeah. it felt like two years. Right. Uh, so January of 20. Thank you, Brent. Fast forward six weeks later, uh, we're sitting in our, our exec team meeting and we make the decision in March to shut down the university like a lot of universities did. Not shut it down, but make, you know, pivot in terms of how we needed to operate given the pandemic. And as a result, send all of our advancement team remote. So you, you, your listeners, and you can probably appreciate the challenges that comes for um, anyone in the organization, but particularly as a new leader coming in uh, that is reshaping the organization, setting a very different vision and direction, and doing that with your teams 100% remote. Um, what I will say, though, and I'm so proud of our team, it gave us the opportunity to do that at much, a much quicker pace. I think, than had we not had that disruption to then drive that innovation and change. And the work that has transpired over the last 14 months, along with our foundation board and our executive chair, Brandy Stimler, and vice chair, Randy Hales, and their leadership, uh, we've completely transformed the organization into uh, a word I use, this integrated advancement model that is permeated now through the entire uh, university. We're not fully there yet. Our vision here is to create that best culture of philanthropy and alumni engagement of any public university in the country. But we are very much well on our way towards making steps and fulfilling that, that vision than I would have ever dreamt of in, in a short 14 months. I think sometimes in higher ed, we are, we are forced, or at least within fundraising, and we talked about this a little bit, where part of your job as a fundraising leader is to uh, understand the needs and uh, the fundable ideas around campus, right? Find the campus partners who can help you sell those ideas to donors, raise the money, and then convert that into outcomes, right? Whether it's a capital project, scholarships, et cetera. And so we're constantly in search of transformational big ideas. I'm sure Dr. Trump is focused on that as well, um, but that doesn't always apply to the actual fundraising organization itself. It's like everybody else gets to have 
transformational ideas and we'll go out and raise seven, eight figure gifts to go fund them. And we have to stick with our budget and sort of move things around on the margin. And it sounds like in combination with just the disruption associated with the pandemic being a catalyst to really accelerate some of the ideas that maybe you wanted to push anyway, but also in your case, a board that it seems like has really been seeking bigger ideas, seeking a new vision, challenging you to challenge them. Uh, and, and that's pretty rare. Yeah. Like I said, you know, I, I said it earlier, I wake up every day as, as the luckiest guy, you know, and at least I feel that way. And to have fantastic board leadership uh, really throughout the entire board, uh, as you said, challenging us and pushing us to think in a different way. And our, our board historically, I won't go into the weeds of, of that, had really you know, been looking, you know, functioning as a fiduciary and governing board, which is very much a part of what a foundation, the role that they, they have to play, but a desire to be a true partner in, in how we were going to generate and move the philanthropic arm of the university. And that reshaping, not only internally within our advancement structure, but also within the board to be able to position to do that. Uh, in August 7th, it's our next quarterly board meeting. Uh, we've completely uh, overhauled that meeting structure. Uh, less time, most of that fiduciary and governance work happens in the committee. There's real business that has to happen there. But the bulk of that meeting being driven around fundraising. And how can we bring in our deans? How can we bring in the other leadership in the university to engage with our board members around those big ideas that ultimately they want to be a partner in funding. And so what I'm, again, I, I'm over the moon in terms of the leadership, our team, and the place that we've gotten to in 14 months. Look, there's a lot of work to do, Brent. I don't want to sit here and, and, and act like there's not. But the position we're in to capitalize as we look towards the future and the role that philanthropy is going to play at Boise State is really strong right now. And I know one of the things you did early on in your tenure was start to codify just some principles that you could then sell to the board or, or frame your, your vision with the board. And, and maybe we can, you know, as we conclude, just talk quickly about those uh, pillars, if you will. I know you've talked about talent. You talked about data, strategy, technology. I'm probably uh, not doing them justice, but why don't you just sort of uh, help summarize for our listeners um, the case that you've made for what I would call pragmatic innovation, you know, pushing new ideas, but not doing so at the expense of delivering results in the short term. Yeah, it really started with, and this, you know, look, Brent, this isn't, you know, rocket science. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm not an engineer, but most challenges and opportunities I look at, I, I reverse engineer those and say, okay, what are we trying to, to accomplish here? What what structure and framework do we need to have in place to be able to do it? And then let's go get, and this is a, a line that I've actually, I, I think I stole from you, Brent. Uh, okay, then how do we need to align the strategy, the talent, and the technology to be able to execute on that? And the first step was really getting the board and our, our president and leadership, uh, which these discussions happened before I even came back. You know, part of what I wanted to understand is, was the philosophy that I was going to bring, did that align with board what you wanted and president what you wanted? If it does, great. If not, I'm probably not your guy. But those conversations started really early on, which, which kind of green lit and opened up that pathway for us to drive that, that change. At an organizational level, you know, we're really focused on three things here. You know, the first is our people. And as a component of that people, it's, it's really a mindset shift for the, the existing staff that we have and our partners on campus and the folks that we recruit and, and, and look to bring in our organization. And that's around creating very empowered, high-performing individuals. You know, one of the things we often talk about is, you know, where we look for ideas and whether that's within our own profession and advancement in higher education or more of the for-profit and corporate sector and, and one of the things I love from, from Netflix is that culture of freedom and responsibility. And so with that brings, when we talk to our team and shifting that mind, a lot is about trust. 
you know, Netflix talks about we're hiring fully functional adults here. We're trusting you to do your job. With that trust, though, becomes that self-discipline to be able to execute on it. Because at the end of the day, we are not only a mission-driven institution, but we we have a service in a in a to provide back to the university. And so we have to be held accountable for those pieces. And so that trust, self-discipline, and accountability, if that's the type of environment that people thrive in, we want the culture here that they've got the freedom and responsibility to be able to get the job done with the end result in mind, which is our donors and constituents, and ultimately our students and campus partners that we serve. That is a great segue to something I know you wanted to discuss. You're excited about it. This is a copyable and stealable idea for those who are interested. Tell us about Ship It Days, because it does sort of align with that trust and uh, empowerment of your team. Yeah, it, um, again, another one of those, those ideas I just stole from, from another company, really, um, Atlassian. I think, I think you're familiar with, with Atlassian. Uh, they have a concept once a year, they call it Ship It Days. We haven't branded ours yet. And, and Brent, I'm, I'm kind of laughing here because we've got our, our next team quarterly summit on at the end of August. And, and this will be news for them there as, as we roll this out. So they might get a little uh, teaser here if they listen to it before. We can arrange publishing to make Perfect. sure. Don't, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, Ship It Days is really designed to, to drive that, that what we call here at Boise State, you know, everybody uses innovation you know, blue turf thinking, you know, when we put the blue turf out, people thought we were crazy. And you look at what that has done for this, this institution. So that blue turf thinking mindset, we really want to drive that through our organization. But oftentimes, people within the various levels of an organization, they may be sitting on the best idea, and there's no pathway for that to rise and turn into something actionable. Now, when you have a culture of freedom and responsibility, you're empowering them to, to act on those and do it. But as we're building that culture, it's copying from Atlassian, and we're going to start our, our first ship at day at the first of the year in 2022, which is really, it's very simple. We're going to tell our team they have 24 hours to work on any problem they want. They can collaborate with individuals within our organization. That might mean they pull in individuals from campus. Uh, it may be things that are, you know, to our day-to-day -day profession or strategy. Uh, it may be as simple as, gosh, the, the coffee here is terrible. There's got to be a better way. Like, I don't care. I want great ideas that are going to build the type of organization and align with our strategy going forward. And then oftentimes these great ideas will bubble up. Well, we don't have the resources to do that. And then teams can feel deflated. So we're going to double down and, and create some seed money. And at the end of those 24 hours, everyone will gather and I'll pull together a panel and they're going to pitch their ideas. And we're going to invest in one of those ideas to move forward. It may be a big idea. It may be something that they just needed to move another idea forward. But again, it's designed to bring, I'd rather have a thousand ideas and we find one nugget, but I also want the culture here that folks feel empowered and inspired every day to figure out how they can do their job better and move this organization forward. And we hope that's a part of our culture, but we hope our ship at days starts to bring some of those to the forefront. I love it. I'm so excited to, to hear uh, what ultimately happens. I hope at a minimum there's excellent coffee uh, after <laughs> uh, the process, but I think it's one thing to say we support empowerment, we support freedom, we support accountability. Those are great things. I know you believe them, but it is pretty easy to say those things or put together that sentence and to back it up with, I want you to feel the freedom to innovate. I want to empower you, but also I'm going to be, I'm going to consciously choose to carve out time and invest money through time and seed money on top of it so we can practice doing this together so we can get comfortable saying that's a problem that's a problem and don't just be somebody who identifies problems we need solution oriented people and it is really hard when you're in a leadership role like mine 
every time, you know, every day I could be inundated with problems. It's fine. I want to know the problems, but also bring an idea. And if that means money, time, resources, we can talk about it. So cannot wait to see what comes of it. Uh, maybe they're called blue turf days. I don't know. I, I like it. I like that. The blue turf thinking there. I love that. All right. So this, um, the, the other two pieces, please, real quick, yeah. um, Brent, in terms of our, you know, really from a, at a leadership level, but also distilling, you know, cascading through the entire organization and our foundation board has bought into this. Again, I mentioned the people and, and that's where we start to build that, that culture of empowerment, but then the organization itself. And, you know, my longer term vision, and I think the vision of our leaders here is to make Boise State University and its advancement operation the best professional experience that anyone has. And if that person works here for 30 years and retires, my hope and my goal is that that person looks back and says, I never left because I was excited every day and challenged every day. And I went home every day knowing that I made a difference or if that person leaves, which will have happened. And, and I look at that as that's okay, because then organizations are looking at us and they know that if I'm hiring and recruiting someone for Boise State and I'm unable to keep them, they look at us as the great shop in the organization to, to come from. It's gonna make your coaching tree look better too. That's what we start to build. And if we can accomplish those two things, then the third piece, which is we prepare to look at and evaluate what the next, you know, big idea and big camp comprehensive campaign for the university is, if we can accomplish those first two, then number three in executing on that campaign uh, is a natural piece that starts to then develop because we've got the right talent. We're innovating. We're bringing a blue turf mindset. We're aligned though. And what's important, Brent, it can't just be innovation or ideas for ideas sake. If those are going to work, your organization has to be very sound in its direction and the strategic framework that drives that. And as long as we're aligning to that strategic framework, and at the end of the day, we're doing the best thing for the donor, the parent, the student, or our campus partner, we're going to move on those ideas and move this organization forward. It's, it's such an exciting time because you've got the infrastructure, the framework in place, the support of the board. But now is when the really hard stuff starts, which is the execution and delivering. And so if we catch up in five years, what will you hope you can say about Boise State fundraising in 2026? In 2026, I, I hope we're, we're well on our way to, to exceeding whatever our next campaign objective is and what our priorities are. Um, I hope that if if we looked back and evaluated, surveyed, whatever you want to do, we whatever our team, that they look and say, yep, I work at Boise State and I come here because I can make a life and I can make a difference. I have fun doing it. And when I go home at night, I know I'm solving real world problems and playing a major role in using and in, in moving a fantastic university forward. And on the donor side and our friends and alumni and constituents and partners in that, that their experience in that process, they say the same thing. And if we can accomplish that, everything else. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's been amazing to have a window into it, to be a friend and partner. And I have to say, um, before we conclude, are you hiring right now? You know, how do you envision building the team given those ambitions here in the next couple of years? And also, uh, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? I know LinkedIn's probably one avenue. Mm -hmm. uh, we are hiring. We've got, I think, probably four open fundraiser positions right now. Uh, I mentioned Joe Boki, who I recruited in here. He's coming to us from Caltech. He's on the advancement services side, has led a number of billion-dollar-plus campaigns. Uh, Joe will come in and, and start to assess and evaluate our more our operational side to be able to execute it again around that strategy, talent, and technology. Uh, so I have no doubt we will also be, be hiring uh, not only more frontline fundraising positions, but also the various other aspects within advancement. I would say we use this year to, to level set the organization. 
I think I've mentioned to you before, and, and these were not easy decisions. I mean, we, we cut close to a million dollars in positions and programs this past year from our, not that that money was taken away, but as we were assessing and aligning the organization to be able to accomplish that vision, we saw areas that we weren't investing in that aligned with that. We've reinvested a pretty healthy chunk of that back into the organization in both people and programs that align with, with that vision. Our next step now is, as we look forward to our next campaign, is where do the growth opportunities need to take place? What role, again, I'll, I'll constantly go back to the strategy, the talent, and the technology that guides how we make decisions on where we leverage certain technologies that we haven't in the past that people may not need to do anymore doesn't mean those people go away. Doesn't mean we're not going to need more people. But then how do we position that those resources back into areas to drive our strategy towards that vision? So that's a long-winded way of saying, Brent, yes, we're hiring right now and we will be hiring. LinkedIn's great. Um, I'm very accessible. My team knows that. My cell phone's my primary uh, phone that, that I use. So email, cell phone, uh, you're welcome to share that. I'd love to connect and chat and also learn from other people that, that you've had on this podcast. There's a number of people I haven't even mentioned that likely don't even know I look at their organizations as inspiration. Yeah, now, who are some of those folks? Yeah. University, I'll put a University of Iowa on the list. Um, uh, is it Iowa University? Did I, did I mix, mix that one up? Oh, University of Iowa. You University got it. Iowa. Um, Kansas State, I think, is their leadership and what they've built. You talk about culture and how they're starting to frame their recruitment and retention. Again, I see these things from a, from a distance. Uh, University of Washington. Uh, I have to mention Notre Dame only because we, we didn't get into this, Brent. Yes. Uh, you know, Let's this, conclude on that because well, you, you definitely have a uh, dynamic duo in the family that we need to make sure people understand. We'll, we'll conclude on that because, you know, I, I failed to mention another mentor of mine, which, which is my sister, uh, Mickey Kidder, uh, who has built a wonderful career at Notre Dame. And neither of us intended to go into this profession. Uh, but I don't know how many brother-sister combos are, are working in higher education and really leading higher education around revenue generation and, and fundraising. And Mickey's a, a fantastic, fantastic mentor. So uh, I, I can't leave without at least giving a little nod to Notre Dame and, and the work she's done there. And I will also seek from our audience, if there are other dynamic dual brother-sister combos that we should be aware <laughs> of, let us know. But uh, no, Matthew, thank you so much. We've learned a lot, I think, together. And I know we're gonna continue to learn uh, in the coming years. And I uh, can't wait to catch up in person, whether that's golfing and skiing in the same day or at the little 500. I know it'll happen. I love it, Brent. And uh, appreciate you too. I mean, I love our conversations and, and I want you to know you challenge me in a good way. And you're very much a part of, of what we're building here and the opportunity that will continue to grow. So always appreciate you. It's great to catch up and look forward to seeing the Grinnebago coming through. Uh, through Boise soon. From Iowa to Idaho, perhaps. Uh, Matthew, thank you. Have a terrific weekend. And to our race community, I would really encourage you to look up Matthew, connect with him, incredibly accessible, inspiring, enthusiastic leader. And we need more folks like that. And if you feel aligned, we need you all to know each other. So if we can help uh, make that happen, count us in. So with that, we will sign off. Brent, concluding today's Rod uh, Ray's podcast from Northeast Iowa. Take care. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Brent. 